0: Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud provider by a large margin. Amazon established its lead by being first to market in 2006, with Google and Microsoft taking several years to catch up to the huge business opportunity of the cloud. Since 2008, Google Cloud has been working on cloud products for developers. It started with App Engine, which is widely used internally at Google, but has not had overwhelming public adoption. Over the last 11 years, Google has refined its understanding of how customers want to buy public cloud resources. Google Cloud products like Cloud Storage, Persistent Disk, and Bigtable have given Google parity with many of the AWS public cloud offerings. Although Google has caught up to AWS in terms of products, the enterprise market has continued to choose AWS as its default. AWS is widely perceived as having more experience in running enterprise workloads and a better responsiveness to customers. In order to keep Amazon from running away with the cloud market entirely, Google needed to shift the competitive landscape to different territory. Kubernetes provided the paradigm shift that Google needed. The market for cloud providers has changed completely due to Kubernetes. When Google open sourced Kubernetes, it created a common code base for software companies to build software for managing distributed systems. In the span of five years, Kubernetes has turned the world of cloud products into a world resembling the open source Linux ecosystem. This is a remarkable shift, and every infrastructure software vendor is still figuring out its strategy for adapting. Adam Glick is the head of modern infrastructure and serverless marketing at Google. With Craig Box, he hosts the Kubernetes podcast from Google, an excellent show about recent developments and evergreen concepts within the world of Kubernetes. I use the Kubernetes podcast to catch up with some concepts in the Kubernetes ecosystem prior to the most recent KubeCon, So if you are going to attend a KubeCon, I highly recommend binge listening to the Kubernetes podcast. Prior to Google, Adam worked at AWS for three years and Microsoft for 12 years. He has seen each of the major cloud providers up close, and he has a deep awareness for how each company thinks. Adam was a fantastic guest. We had a great conversation about the cloud-native landscape, the world of podcasting, and Developer marketing, which may not sound interesting, but you are being marketed to constantly. And it's a growing and competitive and fascinating landscape. And you as a developer who is going to be buying tools as much as building them should be aware of how marketing in the software landscape works. Speaking of marketing, a few announcements about upcoming things in the Software Engineering Daily landscape. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. If you have a cool project that you're working on, I would love to see it posted on Find Collabs, and you can find some collaborators to work with on your project. I check out every project that gets posted to Find Collabs, and I've been interviewing people from some of these projects on the Find Collabs podcast. I'm attending some conferences in the near future, Datadog Dash, July 16th and 17th in New York, and the Open Core Summit, which I'm actually going to be emceeing, that'll be September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. We are hiring two interns for software engineering and business development. If you're interested in either of these positions, send me an email with your resume to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com with internship in the subject line. We have a new app. ...for Software Daily on iOS. This has a lot of cool features... ...and you can become a paid subscriber... ...for ad-free content. You can connect with our community. We've been working on this app... ...for a couple years... ...and the most recent release... ...has a ton of new features... ...and polishes and stability. If you want to become a paid subscriber... ...you can go to... ...softwareengineeringdaily.com... ...slash subscribe... ...and get ad-free episodes. And please do check out that app. Give us any feedback... The Android app is coming soon. The details for all of this are in the show notes. And let's get on with today's show. Adam Glick, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, it's great to be here. You are a co host of the Kubernetes podcast from Google. Most people still do not listen to podcasts. Why is that?
1: I like to think that it's a growing medium. I like to think that it is something that people are discovering. I really, I love audio personally, and I think it's about how it fits into people's lives. The thing that I think was really kind of an open door moment for podcasting in general was really serial. If you listen to the serial podcast from, from NPR, I know so many people that got into it because that was such an engaging story that they had there that it kind of opened their eyes to it. It's also something that is not default for everybody. So certain platforms have a podcasting app built in, other ones you need to go and get it. And so there's obviously a little bit of a, a barrier to get over that. And I think Spotify has really done a lot to open that up because a lot of people had just have Spotify. And now that they've opened that up to podcasts, that's become a great channel.
0: Is Spotify trying to become the YouTube of podcasts? That's
1: an interesting question. I think Spotify is probably better to answer that than I am, but it seems like they want to be, you know, a great place for audio. When I talk to them that they, you know, they're looking at how can they serve people's audio needs and they've been super responsive when we put out our podcast initially, we were not on Spotify. And we reached out to them because a number of people who were listening to the show were like, hey, I listen to Spotify. How can we we do it? And we reached out and they were super responsive to get it on there. And that's been a great avenue for things. They also made a purchase recently, I believe.
0: Two purchases. Mm -hmm. Three purchases, actually. Why is it that the audio medium ended up in this decentralized format that is standardized over RSS and MP3? Whereas video ended up in a more centralized world with YouTube. I
1: could give you my, my theories on kind of, you know, media evolution. Yeah, on please. That. I think certain things drive towards a centralized repository. If you think about, you know, how did podcasting get started, you know, and you go back to, you know, the work that was done with, oh gosh, what was it called? The thing with the, the Lemon logo that by the ex-MTB VJ, was it Adam Corolla? Sorry, I don't remember but they the very early you just you were looking at a standard how do we create a standard for that and I yeah. think frankly you were just that was way ahead of the curve if you think about it and so how do you create something so you look at you know what's a standard that can get people on board and so you have people that are building these pieces but then you need podcatchers you need mobile devices that can actually consume that you know back then you know you're You know, maybe you had a creative, you know, one of the early kind of MP3 players, but then you need something to sync it up. And then, you know, there were things that would tie into iTunes to bring it in, but you you didn't have an easy way to get it. And mobile devices were still fairly early on. Now, every one of us has one of these things in our pocket. And, you know, the apps are widely available. And I remember at the time, you know, going back, people were like, oh, everything's moving towards video. People want richer media, richer experiences with things. You know, you think about, you know, video chatting versus phone calls, kind of those adaptations. And I think that everyone just hadn't grasped the concept that there is a really important space for audio only content. You know, the thing that I hear most from from our listeners and just from my own experience as well is like, what are you doing when you're commuting? Yeah. You, know, you put something on in the car or you're on, you know, on the train or what happens when you're going out for a run? i love to run or people I know that like to bike and they want to listen to something. It's time that they want to be able to, to engage with content that matters to them, but they can't watch something that something like YouTube is super engaging. I love, there's a bunch of channels that I subscribe to and there's great stuff, but that's something that takes full attention for me. Like, you know, I am watching YouTube the way I'm watching a movie, but in a podcast is something I can listen to while I'm doing something else. And there's a whole lot of time that happens. And so I think there's a niche that gets filled there that used to be basically radio. And I think the shift you're seeing is from, you know, terrestrial radio of listening to real-time broadcast of that to delayed the same way that people watch television and you're getting cord cutters who are just, hey, I want to watch, you know, Netflix or Amazon Prime or something on my own. Podcasts are kind of that same thing for audio.
0: Why didn't video podcasts take off?
1: I don't know. I, you know, the business person in me says it's a much harder channel to monetize. Like if you take a look on, but I don't know, the other side of it might also be a question of how do you get paid for it, but also how do you monitor it? So if you go to YouTube and you have a YouTube channel, you get all sorts of statistics on, you know, how many people are subscribing, how, how much people are watching any individual episode, how far do they watch through it? You get really good information. And there's a model for that. If I think about the advertising model just like, you know, television, but with podcasts, as you know, it's a little harder to measure your audience because there's no centralized place. Like, you can take a look at your iTunes statistics, but that won't get you the stuff from Spotify. You can get the Spotify stuff, but what about the people that go straight to the RSS feed? What about people that use independent podcatchers for things? There's a lot of different ways, and so it's not as easy to be able to track those. And so if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you'll often hear people do these, hey, we've got a survey once a year that they're, hey, can you please go take our survey so we can know who you are? Because it's very hard to know who your audience is unless you have something that's fairly targeted. Like, you know, we target the Kubernetes community and the cloud native community that's who listens. You know, my mom might, you know, love me and, you know, tune in just so they can hear, hear my voice, but she's not part of the Kubernetes community. She's not likely to tune in. It's not a general audience kind of podcast. So we have a little bit more knowledge of who our audience is, but if you do something that's more general audience, if you are, say, NPR, that's a, you know, how do you know which of your listeners are listening and from where? And they've actually, they've taken some steps. If you look, they bought a, uh, a podcatcher recently. And I don't know what personally it is, but as I think about that, one of the benefits would be to start understanding who your audience is so you can know more about them and provide things that are more beneficial to them.
0: Although then that implies that the user is opting in to having their podcasts monitored?
1: No, the user is choosing to like, sign up for something. So like when I listen to your podcast, for instance, depending on how you look at who's listening to it, you may or may not know who I am who your audience is. And so if you're making things, you always want to make things that cater to your audience. We have a niche podcast that caters to an audience. So our audience is kind of self-defined. Let's say you were making something that's much more general audience. You were making something that was targeted at a much broader group. Who are you reaching? Who are you not reaching? You don't know any of those things. How can you best meet the needs of those people if you don't know who they are? So when I think about, you know, video has a lot of those pieces. And when you have something that's centralized, you get a lot of that information. When you have something that's decentralized, it's harder to have that information.
0: Sounds like you're suggesting that Spotify will become the YouTube of podcasts.
1: It seems like they certainly might want to be that, and there might be a good case for it. I, as a believer in, not to get too much into economic theory, but as a believer in regulated capitalism, I think the market will bear that out. If we take a look at you know, technology over the long term, there's rarely someone that owns something in perpetuity. You know, if you take a look at any technology trend, you see things and, you know, you will have sometimes a dominant player, sometimes a couple dominant players in a a space, but rarely do those things survive the actual evolutions and changes in the space as a whole.
0: And here's my question. Does YouTube start to look more like the fractured ecosystem of podcasts, or should I say, does video begin to look more like the fractured ecosystem of podcasts? Or does the fractured ecosystem of podcasts begin to centralize into Spotify, or do both happen at the same time?
1: This would purely be speculative. You know, this is, (laughs) I sit in this space more as a creator and as someone who who enjoys it than someone who's trying to make this space. Put on your
0: economic theorist (laughs) hat.
1: But I think you're likely to see parts of both of those. So I think you will have, much like many things, you'll have centralized things like YouTube is kind of the place people go for user-generated video and some... Some curated video, but that's usually, you know, people using that as a channel for those things. But that doesn't stop other places from video showing up. You have people putting video on on other sites, you know, Vimeo or Facebook or even people posting it on their own sites. So there are other channels for video, but there's a main channel. There's a benefit to having it centralized. The biggest benefit is simply searchability. I want to look for something I can type into YouTube and I'm probably going to find something on the, you know, topic that I'm interested in. There'll be something about that. So there's benefit to that. In some cases, there's benefit for people having kind of niche things separated from that. So I think the same is true with podcasts. So I think about like, you know, audio and what do we do? You know, the main source so far has actually probably been iTunes. If you think about like, as we publish our feed and we build our feed, we actually, we put it out there. It's available for, for anyone to read as a file, but most People that get it. And when I say people, I'm talking about the publishers that put it out there. So the folks like all of the podcatchers. They actually pull it from what happens up on iTunes. So iTunes has set the standard. A lot of the RSS feed, there's the generic kind of Atom feed tags, and then there's the iTunes specific ones. And most people have just adopted the iTunes one because it's so ubiquitous. They've become a centralized piece because they owned the ecosystem from device to software and then relationships with the the publishers. And so that's kind of become a central repository for those things. And so a lot of people will pull from that, and that's where they get the updates, even though they're pulling the files directly from us. So I think that there is some centralization that will happen, and that's probably good in terms of people being happy. Is that going to be iTunes? Is it going to be Spotify? Is it going to be something new that comes about? Eh, You know, we will see. I think there will also be independent channels because there will be benefit in that. If I think about people that do commercial podcasts, so like we don't take any sponsorship on our, our podcast, we're self-funded for what we do, but there's a lot of people that do. And there's even people that do like sponsored podcasts where you have to you know pay to have access to the feed, although they're relatively rare. I don't know a ton of them, but I know a few of them I'm a subscriber to a couple. How do you fit that model for the people that want to have, you know, their content, but they want to have paid access to it. There's not a great model for that right now and not great tools for people to consume it. But I think that there is a, an audience and creators that want that. So I think that you will see people that become aggregators and big people in that space could be Spotify, could be iTunes, could be Google play, could be YouTube, could be lots of folks. I think Spotify is doing some good work there, but I think that it doesn't lead itself to exclusively a, you know, one person takes all. I think there'll always be niche communities that are served best by things that work directly through their communities.
0: What do you do at Google?
1: My day job, as I say, the the podcast is really you know, a fun thing Craig and I do as a side project. Uh, my day job is I lead product marketing or technical product marketing for the cloud native ecosystem. So Anthos, GKE, our Istio work, our Kubernetes marketplace, all the things kind of container
0: related. How do you effectively market cloud software to developers?
1: It's funny because my background is actually as a developer. So I did development and PM work before I went into marketing. And one of my kind of tenants is that good marketers are educators and bad marketers are hucksters. And so developers hate to be marketed to. I know because I still do some side development but people don't like that. It's not a great medium and it's not a good way to convince things, people of things. But as a developer, what I really love is information. Give me good data. Help me know how I can do what I want to do faster, better, more efficiently, more securely. And so by providing people good data, you allow people to make their own decisions, but make them as a fully formed decision. And so I focus a lot of the work that me and my team do around how do we give people good data? How do we educate them well on what it is that the technology can do for them, the benefits that are there and how they can get started and run it? And then let developers make that choice, because developers make good choices when they have good data.
0: From the bouquet of marketing options available to software companies, we have banner ads, e-books, conference booths, airport ads, podcast ads. I'm looking at my KubeCon badge right now, and it has the lanyard, A lanyard <laughs> that is sponsored mm-hmm. what are the less effective strategies for developer marketing so when i think about
1: how do we reach developers and how we do the best thing that we can for developers it's about how do we help them do their job and what is the goal so sometimes if you have something you know you're just looking at what marketers will call top of funnel you know you just want awareness how do we create awareness and then you want to get, you know, people towards consideration. And then this whole marketing funnel that you want to do. So sometimes it's just about, do people know who you are? So I'm sure you get a lot of these, you know, people that just reach out, they want to talk about their brand, their product. They're just trying to create, Hey, do people know who we are? And that's like, go to KubeCon. It's a great example because it's such a fast growing community. There's so many different projects. There's so many different companies. You go out on the show floor and it is this sea of companies all doing interesting things but there's only so much headspace that every developer or operations or DevOps team person has. And so all of those vendors are essentially fighting for mind share. So how do people even be aware of who you are is kind of the first step. And so if it's awareness, then people are just trying to put their brand, their logo, hey, do you recognize who we are? And there's some people doing some really creative stuff if you walk around the show floor. Like one of the things I love to do is walk the show floor and see the things people are doing. I
0: don't go to any of the sessions. I don't go to the keynotes anymore. I do the podcast
1: and then I go chill at the expo hall. What's the most interesting thing that you saw?
0: Well, actually, I I spent almost no time at the expo hall this at this KubeCon because I got a bunch of interviews lined up, and also Barcelona is really nice, so I've just been going on the bakery tour. Uh, we were talking about our pastry competition before the show. You actually have eaten more pastries than me today. Not that, sure a title
1: I want. <laughs> that will change by the end
0: of the day. It will change by. The, I'm. This is my last day in Barcelona. I'm going to eat a lot of croissants. But I have not gone to the Expo Hall very much. When I do go to the Expo Hall, like, let's see, most interesting thing I've seen in the Expo Hall, honestly, what I am intrigued by is just there is so much... I mean, it's a case study in psychology, in mass psychology, both at the level of what are the tactics that some of these companies use to attract developers... And also, what are the tactics that the conference uses to sell marketing products to the companies? Mm-hmm. Because you see so many decisions where you as a developer, like when you put on your developer hat, you walk around and you're like, this doesn't resonate with me at all. What are you doing? Why did you spend $15,000 on this? Why are you handing out bouncy balls that light up with the name of your consultancy on it. What are you trying to do there? That's not doing anything. I'm not, I'm going to take this bouncy ball home and throw it out. Like, I don't need a bouncy ball. Maybe my kid's going to play with it. Maybe my dog's going to play with it. I
1: guess, but. Do you have a rubric? Because I totally have a rubric on like what swag I will take, what swag
0: I think is is good. I don't good take to put any of it. I think it's a ghastly, wasteful industry. <laughs> I take almost none of it. I mean, I have a Docker shirt that I wore yesterday. I have very few shirts that I wear on a regular basis. today. But tell me your rubric. What do you? What swag do you claim?
1: You know, at a certain point, you've done enough of these events that it's not like, hey, I, I don't need to go trick or treating. Like you know, the last day, you see people they take out the bags, they literally go trick or treating around. <laughs> How do I get this? How do I get that? And my general view is if it's not something I want, if it's not something I'm going to use, I won't take it because that's just wasteful. Sure. And I don't want to, you know, kind of contribute to the wastefulness. Right. Uh, What I take most of actually is pictures of things that I think people are doing interesting things with. So, you know, sometimes it's people that, you know, just for education for folks on our team about, you know, how do you do better marketing? Like, you know, I'll take pictures of a booth and I'm like, hey, look at this booth and you'll see things like you can't see the company's name or logo. So, or if it's a new company and you don't know who they are necessarily, like people who are here that have just announced this week, so they're brand new, they came out of stealth mode. And so do they say what it is they do? Because people are walking by and you have to kind of convince them, why should they come and talk to you? And if they can't look out there and see, okay, this company does CICD or DevOps, or they've got a private distro or they do hybrid or whatever it is that's, you know, the key value that they're providing to customers. What's going to get people to stop by? Because if all that's getting people to stop by is you're going to give them a tchotchke, that's not a great way, getting back to your, like, what's effective and not effective. Like, what's effective is, why do they want to talk to you? What is valuable to them? And then engage on that. So some of, like, the interesting things I've seen is, you know, so I'll take a picture of, like, hey, those things, I'll show them to my team. When you're thinking about doing events, you know, what is it you see in these pictures? And use it as kind of learning opportunities. You also pe- see people that do things that are really interesting that really engage people. Like one table had carrots out and I was like, okay, I have to ask what's with the carrots. And They're like, well, everyone gives out candy. So we felt we'd do something a little healthier. That's brilliant. And I was like, okay, you got my attention. Like, <laughs> kudos to that. And I was like, how many people have taken the carrots? Like no one seems interested in the carrots this week. <laughs> I was like, okay, but they got my attention. You know, there was another group that was doing purple sequin jackets. You know, they got attention. There was one group. We were actually talking about this. We're like, They
0: were giving out purple sequins? No, no, they were wearing them. Okay.
1: There was uh, one group that we were talking about. Like, it used to be t-shirts were all the rage. And you can still get plenty of t-shirts. But now socks have become kind of a thing. There's lots yeah. of people giving out socks. And we were talking about, you know, what's the benefits of each of those? And we were saying, you know, no
0: one ever gives out underwear. And, you know, I need underwear. I had to do laundry <laughs> twice on this trip because I, mm-hmm. I'm i over definitely sharing too much information, but ran out of underwear. Mm-hmm. I would love more underwear swag. So as it turns out. That doesn't market to anybody though. It's under my, I mean. No one sees it. Unless, (laughs) I mean, you're, well, I mean, there is a certain opportunity for the marketing there. But
1: (laughs) that that is a narrow conference and probably not this one. (laughs) Probably not this one. (laughs) But there actually is a booth downstairs. I walked by. They were giving out underwear and baby onesies. And I was like, okay, that's unique. The Actually, baby
0: onesie, that's a pretty good one.
1: So I looked at that and as someone who has a newborn. So me and my wife just had our first child. And I was like, baby onesie, that's an interesting one. I was like, you have any of those? Like that in the, you know, the rubric of, will it make it on the plane? Like that would make it on the plane for me, yeah. for instance. But all sorts of those things you look at kind of like, hey, what stands out? What's different? Cause there's so many vendors. It's, you know, kind of, how do you stand out? Like there was one group that's giving away cooking spoons. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. It kind of ties to their particular what, company like name. Like wooden cooking spoons? or Yes. Okay. And I was like, okay, a little different, but it sure. also ties to the theme. Like that's tied to the theme of their, their company name yeah. and such. So there are people doing a lot of different and interesting things. And there's some people, there's actually two vendors on the floor, or I should say there are two exhibitors on the floor that aren't vendors. They're actually customers and users of Kubernetes. And that got my attention. because I was like, okay, you've gotten a booth at this conference, you know, full of vendors, and you're not a vendor. Why are you here? Right. And uh, one of those was uh, Adidas. I don't know if you saw that they're down I there. I did see that. I mean, I saw Home Depot at the last conference. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're recruiting. Like, they, they're looking for talent. They also—
0: Well, you think about it. If they get one engineer—
1: Oh, totally paid for itself.
0: Pays for itself.
1: Yep. Cheaper than hiring a headhunter. And a much better way to get your name out there, talk to people about the interesting stuff that you're doing. If you're a runner, they actually have these things you can kind of clip on your shoes, go for a run. It will suggest the best pair of shoes for you. So a nice like kind of product demo piece that they're doing. I don't know how many people are going to run around the conference hall, for instance, but just again, different people doing lots of interesting, different things at the conference. And that's what, you know, as a marketer, I love to see. And as a person who cares about the community, it's just great to see how dynamic all the different things are, all the different projects that are happening, you know, for us doing the podcast it's Hey, what's really interesting out there that are people that we can, Hey, do you have someone we could talk to bring on the show? And like, you're doing something really interesting. We haven't heard a lot about Mm. let's share that with the community.
0: Google describes itself as the open cloud. What does that mean?
1: So with Google Cloud, we've really focused on openness. And when I look at that, I see what's our commitment to open source, open software, open specifications. How do we make sure that the cloud is an open and shareable system versus a closed and proprietary one? And so we've invested a lot in open technologies. and. There's a lot of them that we're known for. I mean, Google has over a thousand open source projects that it's either created or contributed to, but certainly in the cloud native space, and we helped build the CNCF, you know, we created Kubernetes and donated to it as the first project as part of it. And we really care about that being an open ecosystem because as an open ecosystem, that is beneficial to the community. We've always been involved in open source. Google uses a lot of open source. The people that we hire care a lot about open source. And so wanting to be a great partner and community member in that is something that's been important to us. From a business standpoint, it's also somewhat different than some of the other players in the space that have not had a long history of really caring about and engaging in open technologies and open source.
0: Google did help create the CNCF. And the CNCF has been transformative to the software industry. I I mean, I've seen this firsthand. I started my career in software around the time that the cloud was getting off the ground. And just as I was graduating college, I was starting to realize how important the cloud was. And then around the time the CNCF got started, I started to realize the costs of a proprietary cloud, which is basically the world that we were living in when CNCF started. Since the open cloud movement, largely due to the efforts of Google and the CNCF, got off the ground, we have seen this transformative acceleration of people piling into cloud technologies, of enterprises piling into cloud technologies. To such an extent that it's, I mean, it's definitely helped even the proprietary cloud providers in a tremendous way. Mm-hmm. And that's all great, although it's certainly hard to draw a causal relationship there because, you know, also just cloud computing has been growing tremendously. So it's hard to know what the counterfactual world looks like, you know, the world without the open cloud. We can certainly
1: take some kind of indicators from both previous examples in the space as well as other things. So like last year at KubeCon, I was here talking to some folks and there was uh, an interesting discussion about that Kubernetes had kind of become the de facto, or de facto orchestrator, that containerization had kind of hit critical mass, that like this was becoming a big thing. And and it still is. And it's growing. And the question, the person that I was having a discussion with was talking about is like, is this going to fracture and fall apart? And the example they were giving was OpenStack, And they were like, you know, Hey, you know, we, we've, we've heard this story before and it got big. And then like, you know, all, all the big vendors came in. It wasn't a community thing as much as, you know, really became a whole ecosystem thing. And then they all fought with each other and it kind of fell apart. And, my position was that I don't think that will happen with the Kubernetes and cloud-native ecosystem. And their perspective was, hey, well, I'm not quite sure. I, kinda, I think I've seen this before. And I looked at it, and my, my view as to why I don't think that will happen with this community is lots of people are creating Kubernetes distros. But one of the things that Google did with the CNCF is create a certified Kubernetes program. And in order to use the Kubernetes name, in order to be a part of that, you need to commit to being upstream compatible. And what that means is you can't fracture it. You can't go and you know embrace and extend and kind of create your locked down proprietary version. You can create your own version that you support. And there's certainly many vendors that make versions they support. You can create your own hosted service. That's what many cloud vendors have done. But you can't deviate from the upstream version. So they all stay compatible with each other. And that is really important because that's what was a challenge with things like OpenStack. And so, yeah, you see other vendors get into it, but you've also seen that everyone, one, stays compatible. And two, there are lots of people that had their own proprietary different versions of container orchestration. And what you've seen is everyone get on board with Kubernetes, that instead of fragmenting, hey, here's how we're going to do container orchestration, it's actually consolidated and it's consolidated around what the CNCF has put out there and the Kubernetes ecosystem. So even with some of the you were mentioning kind of you know proprietary cloud pieces, even, you know, people that had co- proprietary cloud pieces have created open parts of their cloud built on the Kubernetes standard. And so people can benefit from all the things that are happening in the Kubernetes ecosystem regardless of where they run that. And I think that's a huge win for the community and for the user base as a whole.
0: That said, Google heavily contributed to the founding of the CNCF. How does the community maintain a sense of impartiality when you have competing vendors in this ecosystem and the ecosystem was arguably started by one of the biggest vendors?
1: Sure, it's one of the the things people wonder a lot about, and Google created Kubernetes. They created the CNCF, CNCF, in order to make sure that that was separate from Google, so that people felt that it was part of a neutral third party. And Google is one of you know a number of large organizations that are all you know senior members and sit on the you know the toc for cncf and the purpose of doing that was to say that it's not you know fully google controlled because there's the difference between having something that is open source where people can see the source code and something that's part of a foundation where the foundation actually decides what check-ins come in what features are a part of it and all those things are driven by the community So Google is a member of that community, but Google doesn't run that community. The CNCF runs that community. And if you take a look, you know, it used to be that Google did, despite the fact that Google has hundreds of engineers and has increased the number of check-ins that we've done to the project, because the community has grown so much, Google only does about 40% of the check-ins of Kubernetes as a whole. The community actually does more check-ins than Google does. It's not Google's project. It's the community's project. Google is a strong member of that. So that was part of the reason with creating the CNCF and putting it in the CNCF is, you know, Azure cares about this. So Azure is doing a lot of investment in open source. They're doing their their check-ins. They're a part of that community. Red Hat, now part of, or soon to be part of IBM, has been a strong member of the community for a while. They're there. They're checking in. They do about 12% of the check-ins, I believe. You know, even Huawei, you know, is doing a bunch of check-ins. There's a lot of growth in China. So the creation of the CNCF and putting it in a neutral third party under the Linux Foundation, was explicitly to address those kind of concerns so that, you know, this isn't something that people feel is just Google. Google created it. Google does a lot of work to continue the vision and work with the community, but it's owned by the CNCF, not by Google. We're just a member of the community.
0: By the way, not to deviate the subject from Kubernetes to mobile, but you seem like a guy that's pretty plugged in. Do you have any sense for what's going on with this Huawei stuff?
1: I do not. I mean, I see what I see in the news, the same as you, but that's, that sits in a part of the company outside of cloud. So I don't have a lot of knowledge on what's happening there. You
0: know, it's so weird. Did you go to KubeCon China? I did. Man, my perception there was that those engineers are just like us Mm -hmm. and they don't like this sense of rivalry that almost seems to come from suits, or from the government, or something, or this narrative, and I don't know where it comes from, but I know that the engineers who are actually building stuff don't like this.
1: This feels like a, a, a long-told story of, you know, the, the, the scientists, the people that care about technology, which, you know, I think we put ourselves in that camp, and the politics that happens around. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of politics happening between the, the two governments involved, and that's a decision far above my pay grade in terms of what happens there. You know, my goal is simply, how do we create great technology, and how do we help that technology grow so that everyone can benefit from it? and. I leave it to governmental affairs and the folks who are good at the government stuff to figure out those pieces. I like to talk to geeks
0: about geek stuff. (laughs) Speaking closer to your pay grade, there are a bunch of scientists and engineers who are in charge of AWS. What is the diplomatic relationship between Google Cloud and AWS? So you used to work at AWS, right? I worked at Amazon.
1: Amazon, sorry. Marketplace side. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, full disclosure, I've, I worked at AWS yeah. previously, um, also spent some time at Azure. I've kind of, you know, we jokingly say that I've done the cloud tour you have. In, in Seattle. I don't work on the partnership side, so it's hard for me to say what the relationship is. Um, obviously we compete in the marketplace. We're both trying to bring cloud services to the vast majority of developers and IT and DevOps folks. In terms of partnerships, that's, that sits with the partnership team, but I know at a technology level, you know, I still know a ton of the folks over there. We see each other at conferences, we chat, lots of our developer relations folks know each other. And when it comes to the open source pieces, things like Kubernetes, you know, we all sit on the CNCF and work together to try and move the community forward. So from a technology standpoint, we're all trying to make the community better from the business standpoint. I think, you know, Andy Jassy has his goals that he wants to achieve and TK at Google and I suspect that those two are each trying to drive their businesses separately.
0: (laughs) Having worked at Amazon, both of us, that company is so tactically smart. And this Kubernetes, I mean, just strategically and tactically speaking, this whole Kubernetes versus closed ecosystem, strategically, tactically, has been such an interesting I don't even want to call it a conflict chess game to watch.
1: It's certainly a strategic shift, I think, for their company. If you look about, you know, that Amazon has always used open source technologies in, the, in their cloud services, but they've not necessarily talked about it and what they're, they're doing with those pieces. And now joining the community, you know, they created a, a proprietary container orchestrator and then decided they needed to do Kubernetes and invested in that. Uh, they're making a shift, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, kind of the same way of, you know, that built the Windows empire. And, you know, full disclosure, I, I spent a good portion of my life working on that. Twelve years. That stuff. Those are different business models. And I think what they've seen is there's a change in the software world and what developers want. And developers really care about open source technologies and using those. And, you know, Amazon, I think, you know, having worked there, you know, like they are extremely customer focused. Like that is a, it's one of their leadership principles and customer obsession, I think, is actually the actual term. And, and they do live that like having been there, like they live that and that's becoming something that is helping drive a shift within the company. And they're figuring that out. I mean, they hired Adrian Cockroft, they created this open source piece. And so they're figuring out how does that fit into their world? And I think they're making, you know, strides to try and make that happen. I think that's a shift for them and that's a challenge. Um, at Google it's much more an ingrained part of what we do. We've done open source for years. We've made check-ins to the community that that's been a part of who we are. And so this is a very natural place for us. It's why we created the CNCF. It's why we've, you know, given Kubernetes to the organization. It's why we created Istio, made it open source. Why we do all of these pieces and make them open source. That's part of our DNA. And so other people are kind of trying to figure out how do they how do they change to be a part of that because that's the world that's changing. I say that they're they're smart to realize that they have to do that because not doing that and trying to stay proprietary is probably not something that's going to be long-term sustainable.
0: It is a more natural strategy. Like Google strategy feels here. I mean, seeing the whole Kubernetes thing and watching Google do this strategic jujitsu where they've put themselves in a position where Yes, market share wise, they're still an under underdog. Like there's no getting around that, and it's funny seeing the way that the press or, or the less engineering press try to report on the present day market share. Like that's a forward looking forecast when we all know that in five or ten years the cloud market's going to be tremendously bigger than it is today. Like the total addressable market's going to be tremendously bigger. And it's just amazing that Google has jujitsued itself into a position where it is strategically comfortable, like in a forward-looking perspective. What about the the licensing debates and the whole perspective on the ISVs, Elasticsearch, MongoDB, Redis Labs, et cetera, taking issue with the fact that Google? I'm sorry that Amazon AWS was creating competing services and those competing services would be highly integrated with the AWS marketplace and IAM policies and so on when those companies the ISVs did not have a way to tightly integrate with the native AWS customers and also there was not contribution from AWS to the to the extent that I understand back into the open source projects that AWS was basing their services off of. Was AWS doing anything wrong there? Or are these just, they're playing by the rules or lack thereof of the open source game? So there's a couple, couple things there to, to unpack.
1: First, in terms of like, our status in cloud, I agree with you, like, there's a lot of cloud growth to go. I mean, we are early stages on what's happening here. In terms of where we are, an underdog or not, that really depends on what you're looking at. That, you know, people like to kind of consolidate it all to cloud, but there's really a lot of different markets. If you take a look at the leading work we're doing in, say, machine learning or big data, people are often looking at just, hey, what's revenue from cloud? And trying to just, you know, it's basically comparing a dollars game between them, and that's difficult to do since only one cloud actually reports its dedicated cloud revenue. That's AWS at this point. That Google Cloud doesn't report its revenue broken out separately. Neither does Azure. Um, they kind of they state cloud, but they also lump in things like server sales in, into that. So Windows Server that runs on AWS they count as cloud revenue. So there's you know there's only really one cloud's numbers that you can look at there. But certainly we're early stages, and you know AWS was the first one out there talking about this. They've got a first mover advantage. They're a big player in the space without. Question. Um, in terms of the open source piece and kind of the controversy that people have had about it, I think what we're seeing is the difference in what people's business models are and what they're comfortable with. And it's the difference between Google being extremely comfortable working in an open source world, making things available, like working for the betterment of the community, versus people that have a more proprietary background and look at how do we make our own version of that and seeing the reaction from the community. In terms of wrong, I think of wrong as a moral judgment, and I don't know that I'm the the moral arbiter that gets to say what it is. I think the community gets to decide, and I think the debate that you're seeing and kind of the the concern that you're hearing from people is indicative of how the community is feeling about seeing those things. The open source has always been something, you know, to kind of take it to a non-developer level, just like Wikipedia, of like, you know, everyone benefits from it. But people try and give back when they can, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a prolific Wikipedia editor, but I've done a few edits. I've created a few pages like, you know, I do what I can. And that's what everyone does. You know, our part of doing the podcast is, you know, Hey, what can I do to help the community and put things into it? And so it's a community effort. And like any community, I think people look around and see it, is everyone trying to do their part and are, you know, if you're a bigger player with bigger resources, are you doing more for it? Or are, you know, are you taking more than you're giving? And I think when, you see, when people see something they feel is imbalanced there, that's when people tend to feel upset. You know, I have a friend who was a, uh, a Linux kernel contributor, an early open source person far before I was involved in the community, right? This is back when I just got out of high school and he was just a true Linux believer. Um, and kudos to him. He's retired now and I'm still working. So clearly he did something right. And I was talking to him and he was talking about the change in the open source community because he's one of these open source diehards and you have, you know, some of those people that just like, you know, everything should be free for everybody. And I think you're seeing that the community is also growing a little more nuanced of like, Hey, there has to be some business pieces of it. What I think you see is people, you know, there is a little bit of blanching that you have when people take a look at many of the licenses that were created to really address the challenges of fully packaged distributed software. You know, if you take a look at the GPL or at least um, AGPL2, I believe. It was, you know, you had to contribute back if you were distributing it, if you were selling it. And so that made sense in a world where, you know, Microsoft and other companies were shipping CDs and discs. But now we're in a world that are hosted services. And hosted services, you're not considered to be shipping that software. And so it's really kind of a loophole. And people created things like AGPL3 to address that. And what you've seen is a lot of fierce debate around things like AGPL3, As to whether people want to adopt that or not, whether people are going to write their own licenses, like we've seen a few companies do that are really trying to say, Hey, like there's a commercial license. If people are going to commercialize and turn these into services, because people do spend a lot of resources to build these things and they're looking to, to build their companies off of them. Like at Google, we do it because it's part of the the grander scheme of what we do and what we care about with openness with some of the smaller startups. This is their business. And so if you have a large player just come and take that, build their own version and run with it, you can see how they might feel a little, you know, disgruntled at that. And I think that's part of how do people figure out what they do? You know, we at Google have taken a path of partnership on those things, even with you know other projects, you know, we're saying, Hey, how do we take things like, especially a lot of database products? And how do we work with the companies that created those to do a revenue share and make their services directly available rather than make something directly competing, call it API compatible and say, Hey, you know, you can just come use ours. And we think that that's what the market and the community will decide. What do they feel is more appropriate? What do they like? Like, this is a marketplace of ideas, and the exciting part is we're watching this, you know, play out in real time. You know, people vote with their dollars to a certain extent.
0: Speaking of the marketplace of ideas, one of the ideas that people are shopping for on an increasing basis is service mesh. We're seeing this in continued growth in the service mesh pursuance in certainly at this kubecon like it's it's i think it's been a palpable shift you know over the last couple kubecons the desire to for for these enterprises to actually deploy a service mesh google went after this market with serious fervor with istio there was some criticism of istio in the 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 amount of marketing and evangelism that was put behind that project relative to where it was at when that marketing started. Now, the sympathetic approach to, you know, as a journalist covering that subject is, this is what Google did with TensorFlow. This is what Google did with Kubernetes, arguably. You come out with a product, you express a vision you see a nascent technology to build off of like like docker and you say okay we want to build off of docker let's do kubernetes you say we want we see envoy we want to build off of envoy let's do istio you lay out the vision and you pursue it with fervor and the community builds around that fervor, buys into the fervor, buys into the vision, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's the sympathetic vision. The more cynical vision is, this is Google looking at an opportunity for a essentially a platform play because Service Mesh is going to be this layer where there will be tons of integrations You can imagine marketplace-type opportunities, lots of integration-type opportunities, lots of consulting opportunities built around this layer. And if Google can develop the technology, Google will be the company that has the strongest core competency in that technology, regardless of the fact that it's open source. Did Google make any mistakes in its launch of Istio?
1: So Istio was launched not just by Google. So one of the things I know people associate Istio with Google, but it's a collaboration amongst a number of different companies. So, you know, IBM is a key partner on that. Uh, Lyft, obviously, with the work they did with Envoy is part of that. So Istio is not just the Google thing. And I think probably one of the biggest misunderstandings is that, you know, this was the Google thing as a, as a marketer, I would love to believe that we are as effective as people always (laughs) think that we are, but Google strategy, if you look at it and say, Google cares about open source and open technologies. Well, if you're not going to be a proprietary kind of, I'm going to build my own thing and I'm going to put it out there kind of vendor, then what you need to do is get partners, build this, and then make a bunch of noise in order to build the community around that. And the community, you know, either community kind of moves towards that and starts to build a project forward or it doesn't. I mean you can see a lot of open source projects out there that you know it's an open source project and it's basically been created by one company maintained by one company and yes it's open source but it's basically that company's thing. And then there
0: Linkerd, for example
1: that might be one example. I mean I could give you a, a dozen others if you, if you like. But you know if you have one company MongoDB,
0: ElasticSearch, Redis Labs, yes. <laughs>
1: Yes plus. And so there are a bunch of those out there versus the ones that you see get broad community traction. Kubernetes. That would be like my key example. I'd say you take something like Kubernetes and you see, you know, we put it out there. Lots of people got involved in it and that has been a huge success and benefit for the community. Undeniable. And so part of it, I think, is the difference in understanding what is an open source strategy versus what is a proprietary strategy. If I'm going to go create a proprietary service mesh, whether it be just you know just my, my one that I'm going to do open source but it's just my company supporting or I'm going to do one that it's not open source and I'm going to make it just dedicated to say my cloud for instance then that's a different technology then you just want to go talk about how great you are and why everybody should use you with open source it's hey we've built a coalition to put this out there we think it's great and we want you all to join us in that and so how do you get people back to the your question about you know marketing it's you have to create awareness this is out there that people should be a part of it what's the benefit you can get how do you become a part of this that you know what we hear from customers is hey you know we want to see the other people involved in this we want to know that this lives on not just because of the work that your company does but that there's a community support behind it and so building that coalition is really important to successful open source projects. And so when I look at things like Istio, it's about building that coalition, making sure you've got lots of people contributing and lots of people have stake in the success of this. When you have that, then what you have is a community and something that is enduring. Then it's not just a proprietary product. And if you look at the most successful open source projects that I can think of, they are the ones that have that broad-based support and community behind them. And so I think those things are really important. The CNCF talks a lot about how they don't pick favorites, you know, that they, they will have competing pieces and they'll let, you know, kind of let the community and the market decide. And so how do we help make sure that that's a community piece? If Google wanted to kind of put a thumb on the scale, so to speak, then, you know, that's when you don't create it open source. That's when you go, you know, make it your own and then just talk about how great it is and try and drive people to that piece of it. By making it open source, anyone can write stuff using Istio. And indeed, if you walk around the show floor, you're going to find half a dozen companies that have some sort of service mesh or service mesh management product. And all of them have Istio lying underneath them, that they're invested in that and they feel comfortable because, hey, this is a community project, that they can go and build additional value to the community on top of that. And as they have needs to make things work, they go and they check those in. And likewise, you see things like what was announced uh, earlier at KubeCon with the service mesh interface and defining generic interfaces. So if people, you know, people can choose what service mesh they want to use and you don't break things. Because what we want is like from a geek side, I want stuff that works. I want to do cool things and I want to be able to work on all those. And my, my joke on our podcast is every new technology is a layer of abstraction. Like the new thing that comes out, it's always a layer of abstraction. And so, how do you build those layers so that people can do things and build cool stuff? And service mesh is obviously something that's beneficial. We've had one internal at Google for a long time. And how do we go and make that something that other people can benefit from? You know, it's the same thing we had with you know Borg and Omega and making Kubernetes available. And because we've been doing this for almost a decade, we understand what are what are the next step challenges. And so it's not. Like we, we don't look and say, what is someone else doing and how do we go take that? That's just not a Google philosophy. It's not how we think about it. It's what problems have we solved and we know other people are going to run into as they adopt these technologies, as they scale and how can we help that happen? Because we believe as we generate things for the community, as we put it out there, and as we build those people will recognize the leadership that Google takes as part of that community and making that happen and decide that they want to make a bet on that because when you are choosing a technology vendor. It's maybe for your, you know, my own little kind of weekend projects that I'm hacking together, you know, I'll pick the, you know, the JavaScript framework du jour of, you know, whatever is hot. But if I'm, if I'm a business and I'm having to build a business, I'm not only making a choice on a technology, I'm really kind of like, it's almost like a technical marriage. Like I'm building my stack on this. And if that thing doesn't succeed in the future, if someone, you know, shuts that down, if it goes away, like that impacts all of my customers. And so I need to be sure that like I'm picking the right partner in this. Choosing technologies is much more these days about picking partners than about picking technologies. And so picking the partner that has the vision that's delivering the right pieces and that's making sure that that you can trust that they're doing things with the community, that there's going to be broad support that's going to drive that, that's really important to our strategy of openness.
0: Do you know if Google evaluated putting its wood behind the arrow of Linkerd instead of starting its own service mesh from scratch?
1: I do not know how they evaluated what pieces they were building and why. I know that Google, like I said, you know, does over a thousand open source projects. Yeah. Hundreds of them have been created by Google. Many hundreds of them are contributions we've done to other people's open source projects. Google isn't a company that says, you know, hey, we only do our own stuff, it's our way or the highway. we made plenty of check-ins to KVM, we've made check-ins to the Linux kernel, um, all sorts of stuff that we've done around SSL. There's, you can go to the uh, opensource.google.com it has this whole list of all the different things um, that Google has done with that. So when we look at technology generally, we try and say, hey, what do we think is the right decision for the long term? In terms of any particular open source piece, I wasn't a part of that discussion, so I, I can't say.
0: Very intriguing. You did work at AWS. I loved the Amazon culture. I left that company quite quickly, but that was more because I wanted to. Do, I had you know something I wanted to do. I learned a lot from Amazon. What do you miss about the Amazon culture?
1: Amazon has a very unique culture, and the thing that I think bezos and amazon really did a great job and got right is i think they have a fantastic set of leadership principles the 14 leadership principles that they have completely agree i when i joined them like the
0: 10 commandments
1: yeah i i had a i had a better offer in terms of money from another company and i kind of i took the amazon interview as a as a whim basically my uh my wife basically we were looking at relocating she's like can you look at something local before we go can you at least." Just, you know, make me feel better before we have to pick up our lives and move it. And I said, sure. And Amazon, very aggressive in recruiting, is always reaching out. Oh, yeah. And I I took the interview, and uh, they made me an offer. And the thing that went through my mind when I was deciding was actually if those leadership principles are real. Like, every company has a set of values and leadership principles. And, you know, and mostly they exist basically as a set of things on a website or a poster on the wall. And that's about as far as it really goes. And I said, if those are real, if the company really lives that, then that's a place for me. And I can say pretty safely that like I spent three years there and they lived those principles that there was not a meeting that I had in my three years there where those weren't discussed explicitly. Mm-hmm. Like, and that I think Amazon got, got really right. There's a few things. They're a great operational company. Like in terms of like moving fast and bring things like making evaluations, being focused on business and customer Amazon I think gets that right. But there's also peculiarity. There is, and they embrace that. For me that's
0: leader that's one of the leadership principles, is like peculiar. Isn't it? I I think I I don't believe that's one anymore. I think it is still. But may, may, maybe not. I, I mean, I, like, I liked the peculiarity one. I, I maybe it's not explicit. Maybe I could be wrong. You probably a, know them better than I they do.
1: They always talk about being peculiar, and I don't think it's one of the, the 14 right now. But okay. as, as a geek, <laughs> an introvert, and someone who you know, wasn't always you know, the person that fit in, like that spoke to me. Right. And I even in my time past Amazon. Like, I've taken those learnings, and right. I have a set of, of values for my team at Google that's a poster on the wall that is very much inspired by what I learned there and taking the best of what I felt that had to offer as a culture. The flip side to that is there's also parts of that culture that weren't really for me. And I don't know if you remember the New York Times article that came out.
0: Did that resonate with you?
1: Yes. I mean, frankly speaking, I saw everything that was in that article personally. I wasn't a source for that article, to be clear. I was not involved in that article anyway, but as a reader. Sure. But when that, when that came out, I read it and I was like, yes, I've seen or know about every one of the things that they talk about there. And I only was in one part of the company, so I can't speak for the whole company. But it's the only place I'd ever been where I saw people cry at their desks and people just walked past it like it didn't matter. Well, it's the only place where I'd seen people cry at their desks at all. And... When I left, people were asking me, I'd been there, you know, three years, which is a fair amount of time there. There were only 15 people in marketing that had been there longer than I had at that point in AWS. And you know, someone asked me, you know, why are you leaving? Why are you going? And my, my answer was, cause I don't have to stay like, you know, people, people will pay me what I, what I want to earn, you know, regardless of where I go. And this isn't, you know, this isn't the culture for me now. And so it's, I learned a lot, just like you said you did. And when people ask me about going there, I say, hey, you know, take a hard look at it, look through it, understand what you want to get from it. And if what you get from it matches, you know, is greater than the cost that it will have on your life, on the experience, then then great, you should go do it. I don't regret my time there. If you were to hit the reset button, I were to go back, I would probably go and do it again. But it's not the place for me now.
0: Do you think Google would benefit from a culture of more people crying at their desks?
1: No, absolutely not. I don't think that you ever create a better environment by putting people in a situation where they feel bad enough that they're crying.
0: Don't you think parts of the tech industry have become too soft?
1: I don't think so. I mean, there, it depends who you talk to as to whether you know things are, are soft at all or whether they're hard. What I think is, I think tech and people do best when they're challenged to do great things and supported in a way that helps them do their best to try and achieve
0: them. But as an industry, we have an opportunity. Like, the the world that we live in today we can solve so many of the outstanding problems in the world with the technology that we have at our fingertips Mm -hmm. we just need to put the pedal to the metal put the hammer to the nail get this stuff done That is what I loved about Amazon. Amazon embodies that. You get it done. I don't care if you're crying at your desk. I don't care if you're working 18 hours on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. You get it done. Stop your crying. If you don't like it, go do something else. That's what I did. That's what you did. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: But I'm glad that a place like that exists in the world. I guess my perspective is it is different if you choose to do it than if you feel that you're trapped to do it.
0: Sure. Oh, the H-1B people that have to do that. That, I think, is tragic.
1: I mean, when I was there, the group that I worked in, 50% of people didn't make it through their first year. And if you leave within the first year and you reload, you've got to pay back the reload package. Right. Oh God. You know, That's
0: another one of those you're not trappings. Getting
1: the, the, you're not getting the stock. They talk about the 401k, at least when I was there, your 401k match they offered only vested after three years. So after you're there for three years, they gave you all the money backdated. But if you left before then, you'd gotten nothing into it. So there are all these things. And I don't think that that creates a culture where people aren't uh, working because they're, they're feeling inspired to do it. They're working because they feel they have to. And to me, that's a big difference. I like at Google, I still work long hours. Like I work 60 plus hours a week. You know, people always see me there, but I'm doing it because it's my choice to do it. I'm doing it because I'm inspired to do it. There's no, there's no like sort of Damocles hanging over me where I feel I have to, or I have some financial burden where I'm, I'm tied to it. And to me, that's the difference. You can get people that work super hard on things and drive away on them. Like Craig and I built the, uh, the Kubernetes podcast from Google. And that was just a, that's a 20% project. That's something we cook up in our spare time. Like Sunday night, we're there putting together notes for the show and we're you know working odd hours because he's in the UK and I'm in the US, which doesn't make for great time overlaps. And, just, and we do it because we love it. Is it extra hours? Yes, it is. But we're doing it because we care about the community, because we care about the podcast, because we get to talk to great people. And that's very different than a boss telling you that you're going to be fired and your review is on the line, you know, if you don't spend, you know, Saturday in the office cranking through the next piece that you're going to do. So I think that we have great technology as a community and we can build great things, but there are two ways to incentivize people, carrots and sticks.
0: And I prefer carrots. Although nobody else at this conference does. (laughs) (laughs) There's the tie-in back to the show floor. This has been a great show. One last question, just coming back to podcasting. You know, I do, I've grilled you a little bit, so I want to grill myself a little bit. I do this this podcast, and it provides me with a business, partially because companies pay me to make content or to air podcast ads, and... As somebody who's watching, you know, you're a big fan of podcasts, you're, you're watching the podcast ecosystem closely, you, you mentioned the kind of subscription, the bonus subscription model. Mm-hmm. There are some podcasters who opt out of advertising and they use the Patreon model. Their claim is that by removing advertisers, they are subtracting bias in their their dialogues in their interviews in their reporting do you think that's is that where we need to go to get strong journalistic integrity like am am, am i do you think i'm i'm hemmed in do you think a, a marketing based podcast or media channel is inherently hemmed in to a stronger extent than a subscription-based podcast? Or is it such that we all have our agendas? We all have our political games that we are playing. And having, and this is what I genuinely believe, having a sponsor or two only marginally increases your degree of bias. I think that
1: depends on the outlet. So, you know, we have the good fortune of, you know, we don't have to take Sponsorships on ours. So we we feel no obligation and there's some on kind of the the hard line of journalism that will say hey You know, you have to have a clear firewall between those things But I think you can look at plenty of press outlets that are out there and you have you know The people that sell ads in the newspaper or on the website and you have the people who do the journalism those things, you know I think people have come to terms that you can separate those two. I think that's easier when it's different people You know, my question to you is do you feel that you could do it? Let's you know, let's take a hypothetical and let's say that I sponsored your show every week for the past two years, you know, that we were, we were funding your life and your lifestyle. Do you feel that you could credibly, like, be critical of work that my organization did? Or would you be worried, hey, if I'm critical of it, they might pull that funding? And we've seen sponsors do this. I mean, there's been boycotts of media outlets. Um, usually TV is the ones you hear about more than podcasting, just because it's not as big. But you've seen people do media boycotts. Of organizations when they don't like what they've done or feel that they've done something outside of either what their viewers like or what their sponsors like. So I think the question is to you, can you really separate those two? You know, what would happen in a situation where one of your sponsors didn't like what you said, or maybe it's even more subtle You know, let's say that if I'm sponsoring you or someone's sponsoring you um, consistently, you know, do you pull your punches a little? Do you not ask hard questions? Do you, you know, just choose other topics? Do you steer clear of things that might put them in a bad light because, you know, you don't want to poop where you eat, as the (laughs) old saying goes?
0: Thanks. I mean, I I, I think it's true. I think I would find other things to be critical of. I would find other things to raise questions about so that I would uh, insulate myself to some degree from criticism from the listenership, but it's true. I mean, it makes me observe, like, the truths about incentives, of human incentives, even in myself. It kind of makes me want to go, it kind of makes me want to go more towards a subscription model, because I feel myself doing that. I'm like, man, I, I built this business, I please don't make me go back to Amazon. Like, please, for God's sakes, don't make me go back to Amazon. I will do whatever it takes, you know? I will sell your piece of crap technology to my listeners to, not yours, Google. Google <laughs> makes good technology, but <laughs> it's like, if I think you're gets, taking the generic here. I'm saying <laughs> generically, like, I don't want to have to go back to, to doing that, but if I could choose, and I will choose eventually, I think I would go towards the subscription model, so, yeah, anyway, I don't know. Move. It's moving target, but it's interesting media landscape.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the question is, you know, what is what matters to you most? You know, and you can see that, I mean, media isn't the only place this plays out. It's a clear one, but, you know, I'm a big fan of mobile games. And you see this in the mobile game ecosystem that, you know, it comes down to is, what is your goal in life? And I tend to look at it and say, like, I'm going you know, to basically, you know, my station in life is kind of my station in life. Unless something, you know, really, really incredible happens or really, really terrible happens. Like I'm never going to be super rich. I'm never going to be super poor. And so do the things that you care about in society, do the stuff that you want to do. Like, you know, do the things that your kids and your family would be proud of. And that, that's kind of the, the way that I view it. But there's a perfectly valid view that people have of like, Hey, like what I need is I need more money you know, that I don't want to put in a, you know, a subscription block because if I do that, I'm going to lose a certain percentage of listeners that aren't willing to pay for content and are willing to deal with listening to advertisements. You'll have to, you know, everyone chooses what's right for them for their particular outlet. But, you know, the media industry in general has been, you know, challenged by this question. I think you're not alone in it. You're just someone who has to make that call the same as anyone else. I give you kudos for, you know, being aware of that and, you know, being willing to engage in the debate around what does that mean for, you know, the questions that you ask, the way that you approach it.
0: Well, hey, it might be more profitable also. <laughs> it, I think... At, I think on uh, the limit it will be.
1: If you take a look, the, the news outlets that do charge for some of the stuff, you know, put things behind paywalls, whatever, like, as people feel more and more biased and feel that they're, you know... Ben
0: Thompson, you're a Ben Thompson listener. That mm-hmm. guy's got the easiest business model ever and he makes a killing. Sure. If,
1: well, if you make good content and put things behind it, people will pay for good content. I think that is unquestionably true. I mean, Netflix is based on, <laughs> on that. But even from a news standpoint, I and mean, you take a look at things like the Wall Street Journal, hallowed establishments, or even in the podcasting world, you know, if you took a look at the Patreon model, so it's not like I'm hiding behind a wall, but I'm simply asking people, Sam Harris. Does that, and you know, he also has a big branded name, but his podcast is about helping that name go out. There. You know, I was th-
0: so I was thinking about. I'm glad you're a listener of him, or you are aware of him at least. No,
1: I'm um, I'm a subscriber of his. Really? Okay, a,
0: paid subscriber. He gets um,
1: he gets money from me every month. I think he does tremendous podcasts. I may not always agree with what he says, but you know, part of I don't. I thing things just because, you know, I want to hear my own opinions. I fund them because I think he's doing interesting stuff, having really interesting interviews, talking to people that spark ideas in my mind, that I hear things and they sometimes challenge right. my perspective. And I want to hear that active debate. I want to hear those interesting things and I'm willing to pay for it.
0: I think he takes... He's arguing too far because he's like, I'm not even going to let Audible support me, and I'm like, come on, man, it's Audible. He is taking an extreme ex- stance, which is not but surprising. But he has to his own to... app that he promotes. <laughs> he's got a meditation <laughs> app he promotes. Yep. I'm like, cool. Now you're big meditation. Like you're, some, you now you're encouraging meditation. You're encouraging live events. Uh, but I guess but, it's a, but what he, but he what he, what's his, his stuff.
1: stuff? I mean, at the the risk of you know defending him, but I'll I'll defend the model and not necessarily him, is that what he's promoting is himself and his thing. If you like what he does, you can come see his event live. Lots of NPR shows do that too. Hey, if you like our NPR show, we're doing a live show in and they're touring around the country. That's different because it's, do you want to support them? Do you want to see them? But it's not tied to a sponsor. It's not tied to a particular right. piece. It's saying, hey, if you like what I do, here's an additional way to give me money and not just asking for a handout, hey, I want money, but here's a different way that you can engage where you can get a different experience and you might value from that. You know, we, we just did our first live show and of course we don't charge for that. <laughs> it's free that we- How was it? It was a lot of fun. It was, it was great to have a, an audience there and, you know, to, you have an energy when you have an audience that's different than that's like, you know, you and I sitting across a table with did microphones you
0: do it within Google or did you,
1: we did it at next. We're talking to the CNCF and see if we could do one here, but we've not been able to figure that, that out yet, but we'd, we'd love to, but we, we did it there. We actually, we did it both there and from Seattle. I was in Seattle because it turned out my wife went into labor that day. Oh, <laughs> so congratulations. I, was, I was actually beamed in remotely. That's hilarious. <laughs> But, I mean, I think there are ways to do those things. I also think that there's interesting things people do with, you know, crossover episodes between, you know, it's how much do you want to build an ecosystem? The same way that... what this is. Yeah. The same way that I love, you know, technology and cloud-native stuff. I love podcasting. Yeah. If you want to talk about the the Kubernetes stuff
0: sometime, we uh, we should chat about having you on. Certainly be open to it. Well, Adam, this has been really fun. I love your podcast. I listened to it a bunch when I was preparing for the show, preparing for KubeCon. So it's a very holistic... View into the Kubernetes world, very well informed. And thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much, Jeff. Great to be here.
1: Wow.